woman. <laughs> I can't, uh, I can't complain. It's absolutely beautiful. And it has provided me with plenty of opportunity <clears throat> to slap on the sun cream where near nothing in the garden. And I do enjoy, not naked gardening, but I do enjoy just getting dirty and filthy and rummaging around in the soil. And I can imagine there's one or two of you right now with your eyebrows raised. Your mind has gone off on a tangent like a Learjet across the Gulf. But I am talking wholesomely to you today, dear listener, about the beautiful weather we're having here in England, and it is stunning. I hope wherever you are in the world listening to this, because I look at the stats every month to see where people download the podcast from, and it's um, it's incredible. So hello in Russia, and hello in America, and hello in New Zealand and Australia, and hello in uh, Montenegro, and uh, incredible. It's lovely to... And I hope you're having as lovely weather as we are. Of course, the nice thing about all this weather. Well, there's lots of nice things about this weather, but I think the best thing for me is getting really stuck in all day and then just when either you're so utterly physically exhausted that you can't do any more or it's getting dark <laughs> or you're hungry. Those are the really the only three things <laughs> that tend to stop me. Do you know what the thing I really hate is when you've got a deadline. So I hate being in the garden, but... I'm in the garden on a day that, for example, we're going out in the evening or someone's coming round or I said I would do something or I've got a call because you never really feel that you can lose yourself. And what is utterly magical about being outside, going for a walk, which I'm about to do when I finished recording this, is not having a deadline. Being able to just let yourself run free. Or not run, obviously, but running is a funny old thing, isn't it? Why do people run? <clears throat> Never get me running anywhere. Um, maybe if there was a lion on the loose or something like that. That reminds me of that really cool joke. You know, there's a man reading a newspaper outside a cafe. And he looks up. And there's this uh, lady running across the, the road at the other side of the street. But she looks really dishevelled. Her hair's sort of a bit messy and her blouse is a bit wonky. And she's got one shoe on and she's running down. And the man drops his newspaper and he shouts across. He says, hey, <laughs> hey, what are you running for? And she stops and she looks at him. She shouts across the street. She says, there's a lion. It's escaped from the zoo. And he says, oh, my word, <laughs> which way did it go? She said, you don't think I'm bloody chasing it, do you? <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, <clears throat> welcome to episode three. I've got some exciting stuff. This episode, gang, I've got a meadow update for you. Um, uh, I've got some, uh, many of you have written in and asked for uh, specific seeds and, you know, some specific details on what the meadow mix is. And I'm going to record a video outside to go onto the YouTube channel um, that ties in with this episode so that you can have a real good sort of how-to of how that meadow mix works and, and to look at it, actually, because I'm struggling with it here, and I'll come back to that in a second. I know why, and, and we can... We can talk about that in a second. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the book. 
which of course I'm following, the Everyday Gardening book by John Coots. Uh, I've hit a little bit of a challenge with that. Um, but I've got a, an interview this week. Um, just to, so that's my notebook there, just falling off my lap. Just to sort of break things up a little bit, uh, I wanted to bring in a couple of guest voices. So lovely Francis Tophill, who I interviewed in the last episode, uh, sorry, in the last series. Don't go rummaging around episode two trying to find it. It's not there. The last series. Um, she's back later on this uh, series. Christine Walkden has also said she would um, uh, do another little interview with me because I've got some questions for her. Um, and this next Thursday, next week, I'm off to Kew Gardens because I want to find out what we know about John Coots. And I want to see firsthand the sorts of things that he was involved in at Kew. And I want some professional guidance on whether what I am doing is utterly mad. But this episode today from Gardener's World, we have the wonderful Nick Bailey. And I rang Nick because I wanted to know (laughs) whether I was utterly mad trying to replicate things like they did in 1930 in the garden. Because let me tell you, gang, (laughs) I tried to mow the lawn this week (laughs) and uh, it didn't work out. Very well, because the, the lawn was so tall, that the grass was so tall and thick, and it's not been mown for a long, long time. So it's got tons of weeds, loads of other vegetation in it, that every time I just pushed the, the, you know, the manual hand mower against it, it just folded the grass over <laughs> and skipped, happily slid across the whole of the lawn, cutting nothing at all. Uh, so I had to hack away at that a little bit, but I, um, I cut it just the other night with the hand mower, and... You know what? It's it's really fun. It's really easy. Like I thought it was going to be a bit of a workout, but it absolutely was not a workout. It was a dream, um, and really nice to I don't know not hear that stupid mowing noise or the petrol noise or think oh this isn't wasting any of my electric either. So there are some good things and some bad things about this. But let's dive into the meadow stuff. All right, I want to do a little bit of a meadow update for you because. <sighs> I prepared the wild meadow. Now, bearing in mind, just to remind you, the wild meadow areas are pretty big. The the main meadow area is, I think, uh, four... I've told you this before, haven't I? I can't even remember what it is. Is it 450 square metres? I'm looking at it now thinking... I'm trying to work out whether it's 450 square metres. I think it is. It's big. So it was a lot of work to prepare that ground, to take the grass away um, and not necessarily be that fussed about levelling, but getting rid of the weeds, raking it all, laying down the seed and watering it. What's happened is that the soil I've got here is really silty. It's very, very dry. So it dries out extremely quickly. And that means that I think I've probably not been watering it enough because still, several weeks on, there are only little seedlings really coming through for some of that mix. And there are an awful lot of grasses and weeds that are coming through thick and fast. But of course, with an area that big, I can't walk all over it to weed it because then I would trample all the seedlings. So I've learned a lesson, the big lesson being that wild meadows need a lot of water. Oh, oh dear. Now, that's very apt because I'd forgotten. (laughs) That's my timer to tell me that I need to go and move the sprinkler. (laughs) I'll be back in a minute. One minute, I've got to move the sprinkler. Edit a big chunk of that out. 
Um, so don't get me wrong, the, the flowers are starting to come through and I can see that, you know, Facelia, for example, really easy to identify leaf. Um, and I can see some of those shoots, but they're so small compared to some of the dandelions, which are already massive, some of the other grasses, the other weeds. I have no idea what the heck they are. I'm not very good at weeds. So uh, that's my fault. Uh, it needed a lot more water at the beginning and it needed just a little bit more nurturing, I think. And I think classically what I've done, because I'm quite impatient, I, I have huge amounts of patience in many areas, but I like to get things done. I'm, kind of, I'm one of those overachievers in life. So, you know, when I have a half acre project that involves a kitchen garden, a growing garden, you know, vegetables, fruits, a wild meadow, a lawn and borders, a wild area, the front area, there's a little space down the side, the patio. I, I wanna do all of them now. I wanna do all the things. Because I don't want to live in a building site. I want, <laughs> I want at least sort of, you know, to be getting there. The challenge, of course, is that, you know, a sizable wild meadow is really a project in itself. And it's also a project that's long term. That's what's really lovely about wild meadows that people forget. I think there's, from listening to people's responses and chatting to people, there's a real misconception that you you just kind of throw down some seed and then it grows and you've got a lovely, you know, wild meadow like you see on TV or in all the lush magazines. But the reality is that those wild meadows take years to develop. So you start like this year, like I have. And there, I would imagine, will be patches of that wild meadow that will come through great. And there will be um, through areas where there aren't so many weeds, there will be the oxide daisy and the phacelia and the... Um, other seeds that are in that mix I'm looking at there trying to remember what's in that mix because there's so many different mixes around the garden that I'm testing and that will work but there will also be big chunks where the grass has taken over and it's only grass and there will be big chunks where the dandelions are crazy and there's some other weeds and some nettles and and so towards the end I suppose of the uh, year because you can sow wildflower again in sort of September October time I will go and do some heavy weeding and some more seeding. Um, and then, you know, next year it'll look a little bit thicker. And the year after it'll look a bit thicker. But it's not something that you can, you know, just get rid of. Um, and not something you can forget about. But I like that. I don't think any gardening should be like that. I mean, you ask any gardener, they'll all tell you, you know, it's never finished, is it? And that's what I love about woodlands is that you know, there are a couple of woods and a couple of walks I go on that are, I guess, predictable in some ways because I, I know what they're going to be. I know the route. I know where the pond is. I know where the big line of very, very shady trees is where even when it's 30 degrees outside, you walk along them and you go, ooh, because it's a bit chilly. But every, I don't know, four or five weeks, there's something different. Something's grown or fallen or died back or been hidden and I think that's utterly joyful. I think that's one of the reasons that we connect with nature. Now, interestingly, there was a study, um, and I probably should have thought about this, but I'm just free-flowing um, this little bit here, um, and I can't remember the details, but I will post it uh, on Instagram for you. There was a study done back, I think, in the early 2000s 
by a team of psychologists that wanted to see what the difference was between what happens to our brain um, when we look at man-made structures and natural structures. You know, why is it that nature is more calming? Is it because greens are calming colour? Well, not necessarily. There's association, I think, to nature and green, but green in itself isn't, you know, the first colour that you would choose as calming. It tends to be lilacs and, and mauves and pinks. and So it's not that. Um, so what is it? What is it about nature that is so calming and so relaxing and that draws us in? And you might want to pause this here and have to think about it yourself because I'm going to tell the answer now. The fascinating thing that they discovered is that almost all man-made or human-made natural, uh, sorry, <laughs> non-natural, human-made contrived things are linear, straight, there's lots of right angles, they are re repetitive angles and repetitive stretches. Think about motorways, clean lines, long straight, think about buildings, 90 degree angles, regular patterns that you see all the time. There's a doorway and um, it's comprised of, you know, right angles and squares and rectangles and windows and long flat pieces of road. Now, conversely, think about nature. And it is a random texture, isn't it? Even if you were just to look at a tree, there is so much going on in the texture of that tree in terms of literal textures and depth and colours and shades and movement too, that you would think that the plain human contrived environments where there are much more linear shapes, much more repeated, regularly repeated shapes and, and sizes, <clears throat> that that would be soothing because your brain doesn't have to do very much. It just looks at those and they're repeated again and again. But it turns out that the, I guess, quote-unquote, busyness of nature is much more soothing for us because we can't it's like your brain is stimulated but at a gentle level to look at the fact that there's nothing the same it's constantly intrigued i guess it's similar to why we look at flames isn't it you know when you're sat looking at a fire and it just sort of draws you in i love that <laughs> it's so funny isn't it when you're in a room if i see there's a fire i really try hard not to look at the fire and I just look at everybody else because <laughs> you can see everybody sort of talking and then they just keep looking at the fire and then they might look back at the other person to finish I don't know answer the question or something and then they go straight back to the fire and then there are moments where everyone's just staring at the fire <laughs> that's sort of the same as woodland I'm sat here with the the door open in the kitchen and it's lovely to look out there I can see the native hedgerow doing really really well and all of the birds that you know, stop and rest as they head off to the feeder or home or whatever. And I can see the wild meadows starting to come through and at the far end of the garden, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different trees and the sort of tall conifers at the back there. It just draws you in. There's so much to see. I did say that I would, uh, I would let you know what I'd done with that wild meadow, the little tangent there about uh, nature and there I think I've got some favorite things um I've used the meadow in my garden mix and there are tons of different mixes on there you should definitely go check out their website um because they're already done for you but 
I've also made up my own little mix as well. Um, little mix, do you remember them? Um, which is field poppies and borage, buckwheat, calendula, phacelia, uh, cornflower, corn poppy, hyssop, crimson clover, cow parsley, and also, just randomly, I love oilseed rape. Um, I used to love working the bees on oilseed rape just surrounded by all of that yellow it never ever ceased to make me happy and utterly glorious smell as well terrible for hay fever but glorious so i put some osr in there as well um but field poppies i think are a given you know they'll grow absolutely anywhere and from one poppy head you get loads i was going to say thousands probably not thousands hundreds of seeds so you can sprinkle them around every year um borage is great you know borage is a really really easy um, uh, wildflower, the, you know, the flowers themselves are edible, they only last 24 hours so you can pick them and it doesn't matter because there'll be some more, um, it grows anywhere and it spreads really rapidly as well so that's a really good one. Um, buckwheat as well, again likes dry soil, calendula great for the bees, uh, phacelia obviously spreads and is utterly amazing for bees so these are all really easy I think choices but you could sort of go a bit left field. I mean, I, I think I made up a mix for the bank. Um, it was a big sort of bund that we created behind one of the lawn borders. And that's got sunflowers in it. Um, uh, oxide daisy, obviously, that's kind of the, the classic meadow look of those beautiful big white daisies on tall stems. Uh, musk mallow, um, that's a really good one. I'm trying to think... Um, Obviously, I'm avoiding things that I think are really obvious, like digitalis and foxgloves and nigella and things like that. Crimson clover is a good one because it's quite tall. It's taller generally than white clover, and crimson clover is much better for bees as well. Uh, it's a really, really good manure as well. But, you know, if you've got low areas, just chuck some nasturtium seeds. I'm even beginning to really, really appreciate grasses because... You know, I think in most people's gardens, the, the lawn is cut short and the borders are full of plants. Well, I haven't got that luxury because right now I've got a sort of a big patch of rubble with loads of weeds growing through it, which is where the patio is going to be in the next few weeks, if he ever gets back to me. And then the wildflower meadow is, that's not really much I can do with it. I've got to be patient. I've got to wait and water it and wait for those things to come through in their own time. Um... And because of that, there's a lot of grass. And I've been really busy doing things in the house and renovating other bits of the garden. So I went down the side of the house today and there's a big, long patch of grass. It's an utterly pointless patch. I have no idea what the purpose of that little patch of grass is. I was thinking, you know what, maybe I could put a little building there or maybe we could extend uh, the side of the house with a lean-to and put like a sort of a, a shared storage thing there. And then I thought, you know what, why? I'll just keep the grass there and I'll buy some extra bits. So today I bought some Erigeron, that's gone in there, and some Echinops, some white star Echinops. Uh, but I'm going to keep the, gra the grasses there. If you've seen on Instagram, that's where the fox and cubs are as well. They're sort of just, it's just a natural wild area. Um, but there is a, a kind of recommended easy mix, I guess. And if you, my go-to... For something a little bit light and different, maybe that is quite classic countryside. Um, so it's not sort of heavy meadow, 
would be uh, bronze fennel. It's utterly gorgeous. It's got those beautiful, delicate fronds that sway in the in the wind. Chives, because chive plants multiply. They're really, really good at standing their ground. And, of course, you get those gorgeous flowers, and that's edible as well. Chamomile, uh, santalina, and, again, poppies. Always, always poppies. I just think it's so much bang for your buck. The the heads, when they're dry, look really architectural and gorgeous. And you get free <laughs> free extra poppies every year. Um, so, anyway. But it does seem sort of odd working away from the book. You know, I've been committed to renovating the garden and learning more about gardening from this book, from Everyday Gardening by John Coots. But there is literally nothing in that book about wildflower meadows or about creating wilderness gardens. So it does seem a bit odd going off piste, like I haven't looked through the book for a while. Um, however, I've just finished reading another book because um, you know, I read pretty prolifically. And I've decided rather than starting another different book, um, I'm going to read my way through the rest of the book that I've not read, Everyday Gardening, um, because that will prepare me for the lawn. There's a big project happening with the lawn um, and also the rest of that uh, uh, sort of planting that's got to go on in the kitchen garden. Um, which, by the way, if you've not subscribed to YouTube, head on over to That Jez Rose on YouTube um, and make sure you subscribe because then you'll see all of those videos as they come through. Uh, there's going to be a new series of videos that probably start the next week, maybe, or the week after next, where I'll be creating an outdoor kitchen, which sits literally right outside, uh, alongside the kitchen garden that I've just started placing up. <laughs> so funny. The other <laughs> the other day, I thought, oh, what am I going to line the kitchen garden with? You know, the, the path. Uh, so I tried brick, and it just looked a little too contrived. Uh, even when it was a bit wonky, I just thought, I don't know, it's not that kind of wild wilderness look I want to go for. Um, then I thought about maybe, why don't I just, you know, go classic, nice gravel path, clean, tidy. But it's just too, I don't know, not predictable, but just a little too linear, I think, I guess. And I did say from the very beginning, I wanted to try to do this on a budget so I could teach you ways that you could enhance or change or develop or renovate your entire garden with really very little money. And that's what I've done so far. So to stay true to that, I'm going to use bark chippings. But obviously the bark chippings go everywhere. I've been there before. Birds love picking them up and throwing them around all over the place. And which, by the way, must bring you to tell me, I must uh, tell you about Jonathan. We've fallen out. Um, Jonathan's the blackbird. Um, it was kind of like my little mate, really. We had, um, it was so so cute he used to follow me around everywhere and you know I'd do some digging and he would literally be there like literally next to my foot or by the spade and I'd have to stop digging and go and start digging somewhere else and then he'd come and find me there and I'd go back to finish the stuff that I'd first started anyway I grew some strawberries and it turns out Jonathan likes strawberries as well in fact I would say Jonathan is a strawberry thief um, there, I've said it. So I've, I don't know. I guess we need to sit down and chat about that. But I've kind of, I was so looking forward to the strawberries because, of course, when you take over a garden, unless you spend tens of thousands putting in established plants, everything's new and everything takes time. You've got to be patient. You know, a strawberry plug isn't going to give you an abundance of strawberries early on in the season, possibly not even at all the first season. So all of those little tiny little wins I look forward to. And um, yeah, Jonathan robbed me of my first several strawberries. So I had to get a net. 
Um, Lord only knows what she's going to do about it. No. <laughs> I had to get a big net to stop. She's not that big. I had to get a big net so that I could drape it over some uh, some bamboo canes and, and prevent Jonathan from getting that. But anyway, you can see for yourself. Check out um, YouTube and obviously Instagram at that Jess Rose as well, so you can see all of the videos and updates as well. Um, now I'm a big fan of pocket planting, and pocket planting is well, it's literally as it sounds. It's finding a little area, a little pocket and putting a plant in it. And it might be that there's a gap. It might be that, you know, you've laid out your border and you think, oh, that's those two plants or three plants are growing in such a way that it's left a little gap in the middle. That's a little pocket you can plant in there. Could be that you take something out. Now, because in this garden, I want all of the areas of the garden to look a little bit wild. I really, really want to show people that wild gardening can be beautiful. It doesn't have to be scruffy all the time. It doesn't. You don't have to love nettles. It doesn't have to look like a building site. Wild gardening can be utterly glorious. And that really, I suppose, is my, my sort of key mission with, with all of this that I'm doing. So in the lawn borders, I've got some, I think I've already said this, some echinops, some erigeron, some teasels. Um, and also some, some verbena, some scabious, and some alliums as well. And what I've done is I've decided in order to find the best place for them to be, so it doesn't look too contrived, I'm finding weeds and replacing it with a plant. And let me tell you, it is going brilliantly. So you look in your borders, and instead of just hoeing over the weeds, you find the weed, you lift it, and you put something there instead. And you get this wonderfully randomness and... I don't know, erraticness to the planting, but it works so brilliantly well. Outside the front of the house, there's a big long strip the other side of the fence. I've put native hedgerow against the fence. That's growing really well. Um, although, interestingly, here's a thing. I've spoken to the hedge people because almost none, I would say 98% of the beech trees are dead. Isn't that incredible? All of the others, absolutely fine. All of the beech, pretty much all of them struggling slash dead. Um, I don't know what that's about. Anyway, <clears throat> so outside the front of the um, the hedgerow, big bit of wasted grass. I've ripped all of the uh, membrane off and taken all, thrown all the bark, what, what little bark there was, and sp sprinkled you know the wildflower seed down there. So we've got a nice little meadow area outside the front developing. But you know, those weeds were coming through, so lifted a weed, popped an allium in, lifted a weed, popped a scabious in, lifted a weed, popped a verbena boliensis in. So we're going to get some lovely height in there and some drama amongst the meadow. And I think it's going to look utterly glorious. It's just so sad that you can't see it now. <laughs> you just have to convince yourself and other people that it's going to look all right and that this kind of scruffy phase that we're going through is, is going to be worth it. Because, um, of course, the first year is always slower. But I like to think that weeds are nature's markers of areas that you could put something else in. Um, and if I keep doing that, um, you know, you could even lift a weed, um, level it all out, and then sprinkle some poppy seeds in there. And so that's going to be my kind of go-to for the next, I suppose, 12, 18 months is seeing about sort of doing some manual weeding and using that space as a pocket plant. 
But, as you probably already know, I'm not especially patient. <laughs> um, and what's a little annoying is that, you know, and I spoke to you a bit about this on Instagram, is that no one really shows you much of the scruffy reality of gardening. You know, you've got Chelsea and Instagram and magazines and TV, and they only ever show you the pretty side of it. They show you the, you know, abundance of borders and the lush lawns and the developed trees and the pleached kitchen areas and... And actually, the reality for the, I guess, for, well, for everybody, even those people who've got those lush gardens, is that at some point it looked really crap. It looked bare um, and lifeless. And that's, I think, really important. I think that me sharing this journey, I hope, will help you when it comes to you doing your own garden renovation or changing things up a little bit to know and understand that actually, you know, I look out there now and I can't help but feel a bit despondent because there's loads of it that just looks a mess. And there's nothing I can do about that. It's not a mess because of anything I've done or not done. It's not because I need to do something or move it around. It's it's just because it's all young. And, you know, the weeds do come through and you have to be on top of them and you know, those plants that went in as plugs are tiny. And I remember doing it at the farm. You know, I, I remember putting... <laughs> this is the such a funny thing. You know, when you order something like Viper's Bug Loss, right? And it comes as a plug plant. And it's this tiny little... It looks like a five-year-old's handprint. And you put it in the ground and you look at it and you think, oh, it's, I mean, it's a million miles away from what it's going to look like. You know, that thing's going to be, I don't know, five foot tall and huge great big it looks like a, a firework exploding out of the ground with great big purple spires on it and there'll be bees all over it and it'll look incredible but i suppose it's a bit like an acorn isn't it you know you pop it or a little cucumber seed or tomato seeds and you put them in i just last week i sowed parsnip seeds um i know i'm late i know and you put those little parsnip seeds in that look like well, they look like psoriasis, don't they? They're just silly little things and you you cover it all up and then you water it and then you're looking at just bare earth. And there's, it's very difficult, I think, to, you know, feel motivated and inspired with something when it's not that instantaneous. But the thing it does teach you is patience. And I think there's maybe two different ways that we can, you know, we can look at this. One is... We embrace the lessons that nature teaches us, that patience is a virtue and that growth happens all the time and is a really natural part of our growing as well. You know, because I'm writing a new book, as you may or may not know, and, you know, a huge part of that book recently has been this idea that actually we grow, you know, I... I plan and tend and fuss over the placement of plants and I and I wonder you know do we put this much time and effort and attention to detail into our own lives because our, our life is the greatest project of our own existence isn't it and yet there I am out there thinking well, does this go here and does it go there and my alarm's going off every 20 minutes to go and water the plants and you know coming full circle back to what i was saying about you know how nature allows your mind just to wander allows a freedom i wonder whether it also allows us to do a bit more reflecting and think about that time that you know we need to be patient with ourselves and to encourage growth in ourselves as well on the flip side 
definitely think places like Chelsea Flower Show have got an awful lot to answer for um, because it encourages uh, maybe us to feel a bit more anxious and stressful about our outside spaces and this desire to have something that's that beautiful, which ultimately is undesirable. And that is exactly what I spoke to Nick Bailey about because I wanted to know whether I'm utterly mad deciding to go back in time and only use gardening methods from 1931, as mentioned in the book Everyday Gardening, and whether taking on a project this big is maybe just a little bit mad. Has gardening changed that much from, I don't know, 30s, 20s, from sort of, you know, the halcyon days of, you know, British summer times to today? Am I going to come across some major problem? Are you going to say, oh, well, you you won't be able to garden like they used to? Um, have we moved on in gardening or is it still pretty much the same thing? Okay, so what I would say is we've had this kind of probably bell curve trajectory in gardening, which um, I guess prior to prior to the Industrial Revolution, everything was by hand. The lawn was being cut by size. Um, you know, everything was being done by hand. You've seen those extraordinary images of um, arboriculture taking place in in central London with these uh, four story high ladders uh, and guys just wandering around on branches. And uh, so the bell curve, of course, also includes health and safety, which uh, which kicked in somewhere along that uh, along that line. So I would say um, mechanisation and um, probably the uh, the era that you're talking about and then moving up to the 1950s was pretty much peak chemical use in, in gardens. I mean, I had a, uh, uh, an assistant gardener years ago, a uh, guy who was in his late 60s. Uh, he was, uh, it was called Barry, but I called him Chemical Barry because uh, he had a chemical solution for everything. That was the way to, uh, the way to deal with anything in the garden. So um, I think there's been this real bell curve that sort of saw a peak in mechanical use, saw a peak in chemical use, and then that suddenly turned round um, and started to drop and drop and drop, probably from the late 90s, and then it's become incredibly intensified now. And I guess the focus in horticulture now has, has really shifted from that sort of 1950s road out bedding, cover it in chemicals, um, do whatever just to have a colourful, uh, I think, frankly, ghastly display. Um, whereas today we're looking at, you know, very rich species diverse meadows that are able to support, you know, hundreds of other species. So it's, yeah, it's a massive turnaround. But what I would say is that the, the underlying principles, you know, you're still going to germinate a seed in the same way today as you did in 19, 1930. You might not be able to use chestnut compound, um, which I'm sure they would have recommended back there, which is now unfortunately illegal uh, uh, or, uh, or can't be sold or, or used. Uh, so if you've got some kicking away in the back of the shed, you'd sell them for a fortune on eBay. But um, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, so, yeah, I would say there's been this, uh, yeah, this, this, this big shift, really. But the, the underlying principles, bar the chemical and uh, mechanical, are uh, still there. Sure. OK, that's reassuring. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased that you've said that so far. Um, so here's the other thing. There is this whole beautiful area at the back of the garden, which I inherited uh, by design. Obviously, you know, I've, I've bought the house and inherited the house, but uh, it's just there. It's just overgrown. And it's effectively a, a wild woodland area. There's about, I don't know, 10 trees, loads of shrub, loads of uh, brambles and briar and tall grasses. There's a little deer that sort of rambles about in there, 
tons of nettles, about nine different types of comfrey. So I want to keep that. I want to keep that kind of, you know, that, that, that woodland area. Um, I think that's the right thing to do. I'm super into wild gardening and kind of natural gardening. And obviously coming from the farm where I was before, which was entirely organic, um, and trying to do that on a smaller area here. Do you think that prior to the big kind of chemical boom, and it sounds like from what you're saying that this book was written just before maybe that big use of chemicals in gardening and, and agriculture really took stronghold. Yeah, I think it was about that moment, yeah. Sure. Um, that to me seems like a sweet spot that, uh, would I be right in saying that we're sort of trying to head back towards it seems like that's the sort of um sort of common conversation in the media in terms of gardening and, and horticulture certainly but a little bit in agriculture as well that we're trying to kind of get back that and go full circle yeah i mean i was um struggled slightly at college with what the dividing line is between agriculture and horticulture because you know growing a um hordium um plant as an ornamental in the garden you'd equally grow a hordium plant as oats in your uh, uh, in your field on a grand scale so it's it is just growing plants it's just just a, uh, a scale thing I guess I think there's probably certain triggers I don't know how aware people are of this or not but certain things that have caused major shifts you know the sort of revelation in the late 90s that 20% of US agricultural land is dead as a result of excess salination which is as a result of excess nitrogen application um, and so of course we're on a finite planet and I think that um, that uh, it's sort of come to a head that people have realised we, we can't just keep living in this unsustainable way where we destroy the you know the very thing that feeds us so um yeah I think that's the that's the big the big shift the big wake up the realisation um and you know the the without being too depressing we're in the middle of a mass extinction event and you know we're losing our, our insects at an unprecedented rate there's a study I was listening to recently where they um it's quite a bizarre method of, uh, of assessment but they look at the amount of insects stuck on number plates of cars yeah. um and uh, I can't remember the exact figures but it was radically down in kind of 20 sure. years like 30 40 percent down in terms of the you know the volume of insects so uh, and that's clearly to do with us and the way we manage the land and our chemical application and, uh, and all of that. So I think as more and more very tangible pieces of evidence arrive, uh, climate change, of course, is happening as well. Um, I think people are are far more mindful. I mean, I remember back in the in the 1980s, my aunt was a green advocate and the rest of the family just just thought she was some hippie, hippie <laughs> lunatic. Um, yeah. And now... The, the view is sort of quite the the reverse and uh, and anybody not doing it frankly is is slightly mad because uh, we've only got one planet sure although you know it's interesting because I can understand why people you, you, you know I had this conversation on social media recently and the the sort of general support was it's really lovely to have aspirational and inspirational gardens um at the same time you know I put my hand up I I the, the point of the post was I sometimes get a little annoyed that, you know, I, my gardening attempts get uh, get sort of compared to the BBC's version of Q. And, and I, I want to, uh, I guess I want reassurance that it's OK to have a bit of scrappy bit of garden and it doesn't have to be perfect. And, you, you know, you the sort of 
the showcase gardens are those gold medal winning Chelsea gardens, right? Which look just utterly perfect in in every way. But but Jez, what you've got to what you've got to sort of be realistic about is is much as I love Chelsea Flower Show, it's it's the best in the world. What you're looking at is Chelsea Flower Arrangement. It is they're not real gardens. They can never be real gardens. Where does the house attach to those gardens? How many gardens are designed to be viewed from two sides outside of the garden, not inside of it? Where does the compost heap go? Where do you put your washing line? Where is that access for wildlife? It's it is I, I love it. Uh, it's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary event, and I'm very proud that it's British and that we do gardening so well. But it is a complete fantasy that that sets people up with incredibly unrealistic expectations. You know, I, I've been there, done that, uh, got the PTSD as a as a result. <laughs> uh, seriously, um, and it's. Um, it, it, it's a weird process and the levels of perfection that are expected are extraordinary. Um, however, there's massive fundamental things missing. So, you know, why have we got a garden at Chelsea this year, which is the pollinator garden? Surely to goodness, every garden should be the pollinator garden. Sure. Um, is that not what it's about? So I think Chelsea essentially sets up a, a, an unrealistic thing. And I think for, for most people to have a successful garden and to have natural biodiversity, I mean, that's the other absurdity with Chelsea, is everything in that garden is flowering at once. So it's really bad in terms of supporting pollinators, you know, and, uh, uh, or any other creatures. An ideal garden has, has essentially got, you know, 365 days sure. of something in uh, in bloom. If you went, if you left those gardens in place and visited them in two weeks' time, um, I mean, the Chelsea Flower Show would never run again. It's um, because they would all be out flower. The things that have been forced, the things that have been held back, they all would have stopped um, stopped blooming. Everything's incredibly tightly packed. It wouldn't be able to flower over the long term. So it's. Uh, I think it's lovely as a as a concept or a start point, but in a in a real garden. Um, I think naturally there's going to be waste, there's going to be debris, there's going to be build-up of plant material at the back of borders. And I think the more of that, quite honestly, the uh, the better. And, you know, people do strange things when it comes to uh, to garden maintenance. And I'll put my hands up and say I did it 20, 20 plus years ago. You know, for example, blowing blowing borders, you know, using a backpack blower to uh, to blow leaves out of borders. If you think about that for a second, you know, you're, you're literally breaking the natural cycle. You're stripping off the leaves that would naturally rot down into the soil. But you're also blowing um, micronutrients, you know, just, just things that people don't even consider. Mice will have run across that area. Voles will have run across that area. Birds will have run across that area and all kindly left deposits. And uh, if you're blowing that border, you're basically blowing away your, your you know, your self-gathered nutrition. So I think that sort of slightly, um, slightly rougher um, gardening of course have your your area that's uh, that's pristine but I think it's really important and you, you don't have to kind of do all these sort of artificial things and make bee hotels and all of those things that all of that sort of strikes me as a bit sort of uh, tick box like and uh, I'm doing my thing whereas actually you can do far less than that and provide far more for, for pollinators so just a simple thing for example you know, why do you chop all of your perennials down in autumn? The vast majority of them can be left there. They provide a certain amount of nutrition, they provide shelter, they provide support, they provide houses. Um, and so by doing less in the garden, actually, you're providing more. And I think the, 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 the underlying thing for me is don't break the natural cycle. Um, as soon as you break that, everything starts to, starts to go wrong. And I think that's the shift in gardening, that people are now far more in tune with that 
uh, less machinery use, less lawns, less chemicals. That's a really good point. I do remember actually several years ago when I went to Chelsea, it struck me that I'd been looking for mosses for a particular area of a garden that I was living in at the time. And uh, I, I came across this display from one of the suppliers and I said, oh my God, this is incredible. This is exactly what I wanted. This is the dream in my all these different mosses. And she laughed and sort of didn't do anything. And I said, so, you know, are you selling them? How do I get them? And she said, oh, these would never you could never put these together like these are this is just for the show and i was i was that was my first yeah. um you know realization that that and, and that brings me to my point uh which i think you made so brilliantly which is i think there if there isn't already there definitely needs to be a significant shift in the way that we think about why we garden and how we garden rather than it being to artificially control something for our unobtainable long-term gain um, rather than what is the garden there for you know wh why not just concrete over the whole thing well because you want a space of green and to be outside that is useful for the environment and i suppose that's the key right so how how can it be useful for the environment um just before we sort of wrap up um i i wanted to ask whether there were any particular old techniques now, i appreciate that you're not old right so <laughs> this isn't a loaded question no, right I'm pretty old. <laughs> um are there any sort of older legacy gardening techniques that you particularly favor that you like because you know there were a couple in this book that i thought just worked brilliantly um and that john has a particularly you know nice way of, of of explaining and there are some sort of cutesy things i quite liked the absence of anything to do with creating a wildflower meadow for example because there was no need to back then there were plenty to go and see why why have your own yeah, yeah, um yeah. but i wondered whether you know anything full circle if you've got like an old tool or something that you continue to use because it's just better than new ones or is there anything sort of you know nostalgic about your gardening yeah, so there's there's several things. So um, uh, famously at the Physic Garden, there was the uh, so I, I, um, I ran Chelsea Physic Garden for seven seven years, uh, and there was the uh, the Nick hoe, and this is a hoe that had clearly been at the garden for fifty or sixty years, just a really simple long handled hoe, uh, and it got down to the point that the blade of the hoe was less than the size of a fifty pence piece. But it was absolutely brilliant. So I had it with me whenever I was walking in the garden because you could whip out a weed or do do whatever very, very quickly. So it was lovely to have that. Equally, I inherited a, a brilliant turf iron um, from my father. Now, if you buy a turf iron today, it's heart shaped. It's very, very heavy, very difficult to use. Um, this was incredibly light, incredibly thin, with a lethally, uh, lethally sharp blade. <laughs> and so rather than having to put a piece of rope on it and have somebody tugging on the other side, just literally your own body weight will sort of slice, um, slice Amazing. through. And then in terms of technique, and I'm sort of slightly at a transition point, um, with this. So, you know, when I went through my, um, my training, it was sort of early, early nineties. Um, but I was being taught by people who were, you know, trained in the sixties and seventies, um, and you know, double digging was still very much a thing. Now I'm, uh, I am a believer in the no dig systems to, to an extent. I think there are some issues with it, but I find it incredibly hard to, to break my cycle of wanting to, uh, wanting to double dig, you know, I'm just <laughs> dying to have agonizing back pain and, uh, and a chiropractic <laughs> bill, but, um, 
uh, for me, I think there's just something about it feels like a, a huge investment in in the long term to get that organic layer. And if people aren't aware what double digging is, basically you remove a, a, a spit depth trench, you then dig manure into the next spit. So you're effectively putting a, a layer of organic matter um, 30, 40 centimetres underneath the soil that in itself is 30, 40 centimetres deep. Uh, and of course, there's endless benefits to that in terms of um, increasing microbial um, activity, increasing airflow, increasing nutrition, um, good uh, good support for plant roots and the like. So there's all sorts of uh, advantages. Equally, I'm now getting to the point where I'm thinking, okay, by doing that, you are starting to interfere and intervene with some of those natural natural cycles, percolation of, uh, of water, insect movement, and everything else, and the natural structure of the soil. So I'm I'm questioning myself, I suppose, at the moment about that as a uh, as a technique. I mean, certainly at the at the physic garden, something we we did we would we would we would prep initially for planting with with double digging, but then actually the long term management would just be to heavily mulch every year. So we used a particularly uh, uh, great product. It was a milled milled manure, makes a really thick capping on the uh, the soil surface. Mm. It binds together. Um, and we would put about 10 centimetres down. And when you put it down, literally nothing can grow or germinate through it. So only weed seeds that are in the soil. Um, equally, nothing will germinate in the top of it because it forms this dry sure. crust. Obviously, it's constantly feeding the soil during the during the year. And what always astounded me was by the, the next March, uh, in other words, we put it down each sort of March-April time, that we were down to having put down sort of 10 plus centimetres, we'd always be down to less than a centimetre. Uh, now, that hadn't blown away, of course, Amazing. it's being drawn into the soil by all of those those insects and uh, and creatures and the like. And uh, I, I don't know if anybody listening has come across that phenomenon. If you're walking in a um, sort of you know, semi laid path through a, a woodland or something similar, and you see these weird curled leaves sort of halfway out of the ground, and of course that's that's worms doing what they uh, doing what yeah. they do. And so often that's kind of missed. But those, um, yes, yeah, so I think I think. Um, I'm I'm part way through a, a a transition or an evolution, and so, um, yeah, we'll see where that uh, see where that winds up. But uh, uh, less chiropractic visits will probably be good. <laughs> That's incredibly reassuring, though, that, that that times do change and evolve and move. I mean, certainly, it's it's nice to hear that from you because I look at the book and I see things were different back then, but some of them are logical for the reasons we spoke about Wild Meadows is a classic example. Um, yeah. But but other things, I suppose, are slightly more reassuring that there are people like you that are saying, okay, that's the way I've always done it, but is that the way that we should continue doing it? Or is that right for now? Or is that right for this area or this garden? Because I do think, um, you know, that's, that's cool for you guys to do that, you know, professional gardeners, you know, I think that's, I would hope that's the sort of thing you all do all the time. But for normal people, um, I think that is, you know, with, with just a, a garden and you just enjoy it to potter about. I do think sometimes we don't ask enough questions. We just do what we've always done or we do like you were saying that you just taught, you know, that's somebody told you to use Roundup on it. So you just pour weed killer all over it because that's just all you The classic story, of course, always is that most most people who are you know into gardening to some extent, and I think it sort of hits most people by middle age, but uh, you know, occasionally younger people do it. But I'm so 90% of the anecdotes I've ever heard, it's their gran or granddad that first introduced them to it. Sure. So that's skipping two generations back into a completely different yeah. ethos. Um, and so in a way, that's 
probably partially romantic and lovely as it is, is partially responsible for uh, people throwing Roundup over everything or, or whatever other chemical product they may be choosing to use. Yeah, yeah sure. Nick, it's been uh, super great chatting to you today. Thank you so much. Where can uh, people find out more about you? Are you are you do frequent social media? Are you are you active there? I do indeed. So, um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. So that's Nick Bailey 365. But actually, more significantly, uh, I have a, a gardening channel with um, with my own content. And so that's on a website called Patreon.com, Patreon.com. And it's forward slash gardening life with Nick Bailey. And currently there's about five hours of videos on there covering everything from secretaire sharpening to seed sowing to planting design to the longest flowering plants. And so I put content up every month and people can just uh, subscribe to that and then get exclusive content into their inbox. Amazing. That sounds perfect. Okay, so when I've read the book and I'm looking for more inspiration, it sounds like patreon.com forward slash, what was it, Gardening Life? Gardening Life with Nick Bailey. With Nick Bailey. That sounds perfect. Nick, it's been a joy and a pleasure. I'm going to head out now and uh, feel reassured that a little bit of scruffy wildness in the garden is good and okay. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Thanks for having me, Jess. So there you go. Nick Bailey says, I'm not mad. Now, while you were listening to that, I went outside. I had to move the hose again, obviously. <laughs> Story of my life. Um, and don't think uh, I'm rude. You know, I didn't need to listen to it again. I was there. I spoke to Nick the first time around. And edited it, so I've already listened to it twice. Um, but I tell you what, if you go out into the lawn border, it looks like I'm <laughs> cultivating lettuce. There's so many dandelions in one corner, it looks like a lettuce border. Which did make me think, I wonder how that would turn out. I'll probably find out later when I find out I've sown too many lettuce seeds anyway. <laughs> anyway, I'm super grateful to Nick. Um, and isn't that fascinating as well that you know, broadly, we're still doing the same things that we've always done. But that interestingly, we've just, I think, by the sounds of it, Nick's certainly suggesting that maybe the industry, gardening's got a bit carried away with itself. Um, But I'm reassured that there is a shift towards a slightly more, I guess what I would identify as a traditional style of gardening. Certainly if, um, you know, even if your garden is very modern in design, even if it's very... Uh, I, I don't know, even if you're very exotic in design, I like the idea that the management, at least, of our outside spaces is going back towards a more traditional way. I mean, there's, you know, there's some exciting things in the news about possible reintroduction of beavers and possible reintroduction of wolves and possible reintroduction of um, other uh, sort of pocket microsystems, microclimates with wildflowers. And I like that. I often... You know, it does. I shake my head in disbelief sometimes at how much human beings have ruined the planet that we where we live on, and yet still we can argue about whether or not it's right to, you know, go back to and encourage um, things that are you know more natural. Um, anyway, next steps for me are uh, because of the weather. I really, really want to enjoy cooking outside more. I had my dad up for the weekend last weekend. It was his birthday and also Father's uh, Day. So um, we fired up the barbecue for one of the first times of the year. And I really miss barbecuing. I like barbecuing all year round. Christmas dinner is done on the barbecue. Um, There's nothing quite like a slowly cooked, smoked, 
um, free range organic chicken or goose or something. Oh, centerpiece of the Christmas table. So I really want to get out there with some wood and some screws and a screwdriver and saws and uh, make a kitchen edible outside space and plant around it. So I'm going to invite you on that journey because I think it's going to be really, really good fun. Oh, and in the uh, process of that, I found a path. There's a whole big overgrown grassy area where all of the pots were placed when I moved from the farm to here. And gradually now, I've been putting the pots out into the garden, planting things up, move the pot somewhere else. So I thought I'd mow all of that overgrown grassy area, dig around a little bit, found a path. Um, and I think that is going to be just a brilliant space to put all of that food stuff. But I'm only going to grow what we eat. And I know there can be a real... I understand why people grow exciting things and exotic things and <clears throat> an abundance of things because, you know, I suppose there is a an excitement, a, a keen interest in, in growing stuff, you know, whether that stuff is flowers or lots of cucumbers. But I've decided this year, partly because of the budget thing, uh, you know, because I want to do things for real on a budget, um, but also partly because I wonder, you know, I'm always asking questions and trying to ask the right questions. I think it's sensible to only grow what you're going to eat. There's no point in me growing courgettes because I can, because I don't really eat courgettes. I don't really like them. So same thing with pumpkins, you know, like tons of pumpkins is lovely, but I'm not going to eat tons of pumpkins and I've only got a little freezer. So certainly for this year anyway, I'm just going to grow the things that I like eating with so that when we're out there cooking... I can go and grab things and cook seasonally. But I tell you, one of the greatest challenges I've had so far is adjusting to not having a greenhouse. And it's really hard. I kind of didn't really understand just how much I took for granted having a greenhouse. So one of the things I'm going to ask Christine Walkton when I speak to her later on in this series is exactly how she does it because she doesn't have a greenhouse either and I remember from the last series of Roots Wings and Other Things she was very clear and said you don't need one but the sacrifice is you do need space so your seedlings might end up all over your kitchen table <laughs> uh, but I've got a little space in the corner of the dining room there earmarked with a little trolley I'm thinking that might be the perfect place for me to get propagating all sorts of different goodies and yummies Whatever you are up to in your garden, I would love to see it. So please take photos. Join me on Instagram at that chairs rose. Don't forget to hop on over, of course, to YouTube and subscribe to my channel, That Jez Rose. You can see all of the update videos from the gardening that I've been doing uh, here. And there's something very exciting coming soon. I am launching my own range of tea because I flipping love tea. And I've teamed up with a tea company. More about this a little bit later on when it's ready. It should be in the next couple of weeks, certainly by the next episode, I would hope. Uh, and there is the most utterly glorious blend of tea. There is nothing, nothing like doing some hard work in a garden and then having a little break and a cup of tea and sitting back and admiring your good work and admiring the beauty of a well-kept garden. And I'm very excited to introduce a new blend of tea, which I think you're going to love, uh, because it really, really surprised me. And I'm a real tea snob and also a creature of habit. So when I find something I like, I stick with it. I don't veer off of it. And um, yeah, I was really surprised. I love it. Uh, so that's really exciting. 
news about another podcast, which is slightly related and linked to this one um, uh, next soon as well. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up to T-Mail, which is my monthly email newsletter, T-Mail. Go to jezrose, sorry, thatjezrose.com and uh, the little pop-up there will ask you if you want to sign up to it. If the pop-up doesn't pop up, because sometimes pop-ups don't pop up, even when we'd like them to pop up, scroll down to the bottom and there's a little banner there as well. So we can stay connected and you can show me via either email or tag me on Instagram the things that you're growing in your garden because I would love some inspiration and to share the love as well. Until next time, gang, have a wonderful, wonderful summer. Whatever you're up to, wherever you're going. And the next time you're outside with that long list of things you want to do or on a mission to go for a walk, do me a favour. Just stop. Just look at something. It could be a tree. Give yourself 10, 15 seconds max. And tell me then that it doesn't just do something wonderful to you deep inside. Take care. Be kind. <laughs>